Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen's timeless tale of the Dashwood sisters set in Regency-era England. This is the 12th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series, plus new episodes, at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Sense and Sensibility. Chapter 8 Mrs. Jennings was a widow with an ample jointure. She had only two daughters, both of whom she had lived to see respectably married, and she had now, therefore, nothing to do but to marry all the rest of the world. In the promotion of this object, she was zealously active, as far as her ability reached, and missed no opportunity of projecting weddings among all the young people of her acquaintance. She was remarkably quick in the discovery of attachments, and had enjoyed the advantage of raising the blushes and the vanity of many a young lady by insinuations of her power over such a young man, and this kind of discernment enabled her soon after her arrival at Barton decisively to pronounce that Colonel Brandon was very much in love with Marianne Dashwood. She rather suspected it to be so, on the very first evening of their being together, from his listening so attentively while she sang to them. And when the visit was returned by the Middletons dining at the cottage, the fact was ascertained by his listening to her again. It must be so. She was perfectly convinced of it. It would be an excellent match, for he was rich, and she was handsome. Mrs. Jennings had been anxious to see Colonel Brandon well married ever since her connection with Sir John first brought him to her knowledge, and she was always anxious to get a good husband for every pretty girl. The immediate advantage to herself was by no means inconsiderable, for it supplied her with endless jokes against them both. At the park, she laughed at the Colonel, and in the cottage at Marianne, To the former, her raillery was, probably, as far as it regarded only himself, perfectly indifferent. But to the latter, it was at first incomprehensible, and when its object was understood, she hardly knew whether most to laugh at its absurdity or censure its impertinence, for she considered it an unfeeling reflection on the colonel's advanced years and on his forlorn condition as an old bachelor. Mrs. Dashwood, who could not think a man five years younger than herself so exceedingly ancient as he appeared to the youthful fancy of her daughter, ventured to clear Mrs. Jennings from the probability of wishing to throw ridicule on his age. "'But at least, Mamma, you cannot deny the absurdity of the accusation, though you may not think it intentionally ill-natured. Colonel Brandon is certainly younger than Mrs. Jennings, but he is old enough to be my father, and if he were ever animated enough to be in love, must have long outlived every sensation of the kind. It is too ridiculous.' When is a man to be safe from such wit, if age and infirmity will not protect him?' "'Infirmity?' said Eleanor. Do you call Colonel Brandon infirm? I can easily suppose that his age might appear much greater to you than to my mother, but you can hardly deceive yourself as his having the use of his limbs. Did you not hear him complain of the rheumatism? And is it not the commonest infirmity of declining life? 
<laughs> My dearest child, said her mother, laughing. At this rate, you must be in continual terror of my decay. And it must seem to you a miracle that my life has been extended to the advanced age of forty. Mamma, you are not doing me justice. I know very well that Colonel Brandon is not old enough to make his friends yet apprehensive of losing him in the course of nature. He may live twenty years longer, but thirty-five has nothing to do with matrimony. Perhaps said Eleanor. Thirty-five and seventeen had better not have anything to do with matrimony together. But if there should by any chance happen to be a woman who is single at seven and twenty, I should not think Colonel Brandon's being thirty-five any objection to his marrying her. A woman of seven and twenty, said Marianne, after pausing a moment, can never hope to feel or inspire affection again. And if her home be uncomfortable, or her fortune small, I can suppose that she might bring herself to submit to the offices of a nurse for the sake of the provision and security of a wife. In his marrying such a woman, therefore, there would be nothing unsuitable. It will be a compact of convenience, and the world would be satisfied.' In my eyes it would be no marriage at all, but that would be nothing. To me it would seem only a commercial exchange, in which each wished to be benefited at the expense of the other. It would be impossible, I know, replied Eleanor, to convince you that a woman of seven and twenty could feel for a man of thirty-five anything near enough to love to make him a desirable companion to her. "'But I must object to your dooming Colonel Brandon and his wife "'to the constant confinement of a sick chamber, "'merely because he chanced to complain yesterday, "'a very cold, damp day, "'of a slight rheumatic feel in one of his shoulders. "'But he talked of flannel waistcoats,' said Marianne, "'and with me a flannel waistcoat is invariably connected "'with aches, cramps, rheumatism, "'and every species of ailment that can afflict the old and the feeble.' Had he only been in a violent fever, you would not have despised him half so much. Confess, Marianne, is not there something interesting to you in the flushed cheek, hollow eye, and quick pulse of a fever? Soon after this, upon Eleanor's leaving the room, Mamma, said Marianne, I have an alarm on the subject of illness which I cannot conceal from you. I am sure Edward Ferrars is not well. "'We have now been here almost a fortnight, and yet he does not come. "'Nothing but real indisposition could occasion this extraordinary delay. "'What else can detain him at Norland?' "'Have you any idea his coming so soon?' said Mrs. Dashwood. "'I had none. "'On the contrary, if I have felt any anxiety at all on the subject, "'it has been in recollecting that he sometimes showed a want of pleasure "'and readiness in accepting my invitation when I talked of his coming to Barton. "'Does Eleanor expect him already? "'I have never mentioned it to her, but of course she must. "'I rather think you are mistaken.' "'For when I was talking to her yesterday "'of getting a new grate for the spare bedchamber, "'she observed that there was no immediate hurry for it, "'as it was not likely that the room would be wanted for some time. "'How strange this is! "'What can be the meaning of it? "'But the whole of their behaviour to each other has been unaccountable. "'How cold, how, how composed were their last adieus! "'How languid their conversation the last evening of their being together! "'In Edward's farewell there was no distinction between Eleanor and me. 
it was the good wishes of an affectionate brother to both. Twice did I leave them purposely together in the course of the last morning, and each time did he most unaccountably follow me out of the room, and Eleanor, in quitting Norland and Edward, cried not as I did. Even now her self-command is invariable. When is she dejected or melancholy? When does she try to avoid society, or appear restless and dissatisfied in it? Chapter 9 the Dashwoods were now settled at Barton with tolerable comfort to themselves. The house and the garden, with all the objects surrounding them, would now become familiar, and the ordinary pursuits, which had given to Norland half its charms, were engaged in again with far greater enjoyment than Norland had been able to afford since the loss of their father. Sir John Middleton, who called on them every day for the first fortnight, and who was not in the habit of seeing much occupation at home, could not conceal his amazement on finding them always employed. Their visitors, except those from Barton Park, were not many, for in spite of Sir John's urgent entreaties that they would mix more in the neighbourhood, and repeated assurances of his carriage being always at their service, the independence of Mrs. Dashwood's spirit overcame the wish of society for her children, and she was resolute in declining to visit any family beyond the distance of a walk. There were but few who could be so classed, and it was not all of them that were attainable. About a mile and a half from the cottage, along the narrow, winding valley of Allenham, which issued from that of Barton, as formerly described, the girls had in one of their earliest walks, discovered an ancient, respectable-looking mansion, which, by reminding them a little of Norland, interested their imagination, and made them wish to be better acquainted with it. But they learned, on inquiry, that its possessor, an elderly lady of very good character, was unfortunately too infirm to mix with the world, and never stirred from home. The whole country about them abounded in beautiful walks. The high downs, which invited them from almost every window of the cottage to seek the exquisite enjoyment of air on their summits, were a happy alternative when the dirt of the valleys beneath shut up their superior beauties, and towards one of these hills did Marianne and Margaret one memorable morning direct their steps attracted by the partial sunshine of a showery sky, and unable longer to bear the confinement which the settled rain of the two preceding days had occasioned. The weather was not tempting enough to draw the two others from their pencil and their book, in spite of Marianne's declaration that the day would be lastingly fair, and that every threatening cloud would be drawn off from their hills, and the two girls set off together. They gaily ascended the downs, rejoicing in their own penetration of every glimpse of blue sky, and when they caught in their faces the animating gales of a high southwesterly wind, they pitied the fears which had prevented their mother and Eleanor from sharing such delightful sensations. "'Is there a felicity in the world?' said Marianne. "'Superior to this. Margaret, we will walk here at least two hours.' Margaret agreed and they pursued their way against the wind, resisting it with laughing delight for about twenty minutes longer, when suddenly the clouds united over their heads, and a driving rain set full in their face. 
chagrined and surprised. They were obliged, though unwillingly, to turn back, for no shelter was nearer than their own house. One consolation, however, remained for them, to which the exigence of the moment gave more than usual propriety. It was that of running with all possible speed down the steep side of the hill, which led immediately to their garden gate. They set off. Marianne had at first the advantage, but a false step brought her suddenly to the ground, and Margaret, unable to stop herself to assist her, was involuntarily hurried along and reached the bottom in safety. A gentleman carrying a gun, with two pointers playing around him, was passing up the hill and within a few yards of Marianne when her accident happened. He put down his gun and ran to her assistance. She had raised herself from the ground, but her foot had been twisted in her fall, and she was scarcely able to stand. The gentleman offered his services, and perceiving that her modesty declined what her situation rendered necessary, took her up in his arms without farther delay and carried her down the hill. Then, passing through the garden, the gate of which had been left open by Margaret, he bore her directly into the house whither Margaret was just arrived, and quitted not his hold till he had seated her in a chair in the parlour. Eleanor and her mother rose up in amazement at their entrance, and while the eyes of both were fixed on him with an evident wonder and a secret admiration which equally sprung from his appearance, he apologized for his intrusion by relating its cause in a manner so frank and so graceful that his person— which was uncommonly handsome, received additional charms from his voice and expression. Had he been even old, ugly, and vulgar, the gratitude and kindness of Mrs. Dashwood would have been secured by any act of attention to her child. But the influence of youth, beauty, and elegance gave an interest to the action which came home to her feelings." She thanked him again and again, and, with a sweetness of address which always attended her, invited him to be seated. But this he declined, as he was dirty and wet. Mrs. Dashwood then begged to know to whom she was obliged. His name, he replied, was Willoughby, and his present home was at Allenham, from whence he hoped she would allow him the honour of calling to-morrow to inquire after Miss Dashwood. The honour was readily granted, and he then departed to make himself still more interesting in the midst of a heavy rain. His manly beauty and more than common gracefulness were instantly the theme of general admiration, and the laugh which his gallantry raised against Mary Anne received particular spirit from his exterior attractions. Marianne herself had seen less of him than her mamma, for the confusion which crimsoned over her face on his lifting her up had robbed her of the power of regarding him after their entering the house. But she had seen enough of him to join in all the admiration of the others, and with an energy which always adorned her praise. His person and air were equal to what her fancy had ever drawn for the hero of a favorite story— and in his carrying her into the house with so little previous formality, there was a rapidity of thought which particularly recommended the action to her. Every circumstance belonging to him was interesting. 
His name was Good. His residence was in their favorite village, and she soon found out that of all manly dresses, a shooting jacket was the most becoming. Her imagination was busy, her reflections were pleasant, and the pain of a sprained ankle was disregarded. Sir John called on them as soon as the next interval of fair weather that morning allowed him to get out of doors, and Marianne's accident being related to him, he was eagerly asked whether he knew any gentleman of the name of Willoughby at Allenham. Oh, Willoughby! cried Sir John. What? Is he in the country? That is good news, however. I will ride over tomorrow and ask him to dinner on Thursday. You know him, then? said Mrs. Dashwood. Know him? To be sure I do. Why, he is down here every year. And what sort of a young man is he? As good a kind of fellow as ever lived, I assure you. A very decent shot, and there is not a bolder rider in England. And is that all you can say for him? cried Marianne indignantly. But what are his manners on more intimate acquaintance? What his pursuits, his talents, and genius? Sir John was rather puzzled. Upon my soul, said he, I do not know much about him as to all that, but he is a pleasant, good-humoured fellow, and has got the nicest little black bitch of a pointer I ever saw. Was she out with him today? But Marianne could no more satisfy him as to the colour of Mr. Willoughby's pointer than he could describe to her the shades of his mind. But who is he? said Eleanor. "'Where does he come from? Has he a house at Allenham?' On this point, Sir John could give more certain intelligence. And he told them that Mr. Willoughby had no property of his own in the country, that he resided there only when he was visiting the old lady at Allenham Court, to whom he was related, and whose possessions he was to inherit, adding, Yes, yes, he is very well worth catching, I can tell you, Miss Dashwood. He has a pretty little estate of his own in Somersetshire, besides. And if I were you, I would not give him up to my younger sister, in spite of all this tumbling down hills. <laughs> Miss Marianne must not expect to have all the men to herself. Brandon will be jealous if he does not take care. I do not believe said Mrs. Dashwood, with a good-humoured smile, that Mr. Willoughby will be incommoded by the attempts of either of my daughters towards what you call catching him. It is not an employment to which they have been brought up. Men are very safe with us. Let them be ever so rich. I am glad to find, however, from what you say, that he is a respectable young man, and one whose acquaintance will not be ineligible.' "'He is as good a sort of fellow, I believe, as ever lived,' repeated Sir John. "'I remember last Christmas at a little hop at the park. "'He danced from eight o'clock till four without one sitting down.' "'Did he indeed?' cried Marianne, with sparkling eyes. "'And with elegance? With spirit?' "'Oh, yes, and he was up again at eight to ride to covert. Oh, "'That is what I like. That is what a young man ought to be.' Whatever be his pursuits, his eagerness in them should know no moderation and leave him no sense of fatigue. <laughs> aye, 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 aye. Mm, I see how it will be, said Sir John. I see how it will be. You will be setting your cap at him now and never think of poor Brandon. 
That is an expression, Sir John, said Marianne, warmly, which I particularly dislike. I abhor every commonplace phrase by which wit is intended, and setting one's cap at a man or making a conquest are the most odious of all. Their tendency is gross and illiberal, and if their construction could ever be deemed clever, time has long ago destroyed all its ingenuity. Sir John did not much understand this reproof, but he laughed as heartily as if he did, and then replied, "'Aye, you will make conquests enough, I dare say, one way or other.' "'Poor Brandon! He is quite smitten already, and he is very well worth setting your cap at, I can tell you, in spite of all this tumbling about and spraining of ankles.'" Chapter 10 Marianne's preserver, as Margaret, with more elegance than precision, styled Willoughby, called at the cottage early the next morning to make his personal enquiries. He was received by Mrs. Dashwood with more than politeness, with a kindness which Sir John's account of him and her own gratitude prompted, and everything that passed during the visit tended to assure him of the sense elegance, mutual affection, and domestic comfort of the family to whom accident had now introduced him. Of their personal charms, he had not required a second interview to be convinced. Miss Dashwood had a delicate complexion, regular features, and a remarkably pretty figure. Marianne was still handsomer, her form, though not so correct as her sister's, in having the advantage of height, was more striking and her face was so lovely that when in the common cant of praise she was called a beautiful girl, truth was less violently outraged than usually happens. Her skin was very brown, but from its transparency her complexion was uncommonly brilliant. Her features were all good, her smile was sweet and attractive, and in her eyes, which were very dark, there was a life a spirit, an eagerness which could hardly be seen without delight. From Willoughby, their expression was at first held back by the embarrassment which the remembrance of his assistance created. But when this passed away, when her spirits became collected, when she saw that to the perfect good breeding of the gentleman he united frankness and vivacity, and above all, when she heard him declare that of music and dancing he was passionately fond, she gave him such a look of approbation as secured the largest share of his discourse to herself for the rest of his stay. It was only necessary to mention any favorite amusement to engage her to talk. She could not be silent when such points were introduced, and she had neither shyness nor reserve in their discussion. They speedily discovered that their enjoyment of dancing and music was mutual, and that it arose from a general conformity of judgment in all that related to either. Encouraged by this to a further examination of his opinions, she proceeded to question him on the subject of books. Her favorite authors were brought forward and dealt upon with so much rapture and delight that any young man of five-and-twenty must have been insensible indeed not to become an immediate convert to the excellence of such works, however disregarded before. Their taste was strikingly alike. The same books, the same passages were idolized by each. 
or if any difference appeared, any objection arose, it lasted no longer than till the force of her arguments and the brightness of her eyes could be displayed. He acquiesced in all her decisions, caught all her enthusiasm, and long before his visit concluded, they conversed with the familiarity of a long-established acquaintance. "'Well, Marianne,' said Eleanor, as soon as he had left them, "'for one morning I think you have done pretty well. You have already ascertained Mr. Willoughby's opinion in almost every matter of importance. You know what he thinks of Cowper and Scott.' You are certain of his estimating their beauties, as he ought, and you have received every assurance of his admiring Pope no more than is proper. But how is your acquaintance to be long supported under such extraordinary dispatch of every subject for discourse? You will soon have exhausted each favorite topic. Another meeting will suffice to explain his sentiments on picturesque beauty and second marriages, and then you can have nothing farther to ask. "'Eleanor,' cried Marianne, "'is this fair? Is this just? Are my ideas so scanty? But I say what you mean. I have been too much at my ease, too happy, too frank. I have erred against every commonplace notion of decorum. I have been open and sincere, where I ought to have been reserved, spiritless, dull, and deceitful.' Had I talked only of the weather and the roads, and had I spoken only once in ten minutes, this reproach would have been spared. My love, said her mother, you must not be offended with Eleanor. She was only in jest. I should scold her myself if she were capable of wishing to check the delight of your conversation with our new friend. Marianne was softened in a moment. Willoughby, on his side, gave every proof of his pleasure in their acquaintance, which an evident wish of improving it could offer. He came to them every day. To inquire after Marianne was at first his excuse, but the encouragement of his reception, to which every day gave greater kindness, made such an excuse unnecessary before it had ceased to be possible by Marianne's perfect recovery." She was confined for some days to the house, but never had any confinement been less irksome. Willoughby was a young man of good abilities, quick imagination, lively spirits, and open affectionate manners. He was exactly formed to engage Marianne's heart, for with all this he joined not only a captivating person, but a natural ardor of mind which was now roused and increased by the example of her own, and which recommended him to her affection beyond everything else. His society became gradually her most exquisite enjoyment. They read, they talked, they sang together— his musical talents were considerable, and he read with all the sensibility and spirit which Edward had unfortunately wanted. In Mrs. Dashwood's estimation, he was as faultless as in Marianne's, and Eleanor saw nothing to censure in him but a propensity in which he strongly resembled and particularly delighted her sister of saying too much what he thought on every occasion without attention to persons or circumstances. 
in hastily forming and giving his opinion of other people, in sacrificing general politeness to the enjoyment of undivided attention where his heart was engaged, and in slighting too easily the forms of worldly propriety, he displayed a want of caution which Eleanor could not approve in spite of all that he and Marianne could say in its support. Marianne began now to perceive that the desperation which had seized her at sixteen and a half of ever seeing a man who could satisfy her ideas of perfection had been rash and unjustifiable. Willoughby was all that her fancy had delineated in that unhappy hour, and in every brighter period, as capable of attaching her, and his behaviour declared his wishes to be in that respect as earnest as his abilities were strong. Her mother, too, in whose mind not one speculative thought of their marriage had been raised by his prospect of riches, was led before the end of a week to hope and expect it, and secretly to congratulate herself on having gained two such sons-in-law as Edward and Willoughby. Colonel Brandon's partiality for Marianne, which had so early been discovered by his friends, now first became perceptible to Eleanor, when it ceased to be noticed by them. Their attention and wit were drawn off to his more fortunate rival, and the raillery which the other had incurred before any partiality arose was removed when his feelings began really to call for the ridicule so justly annexed to sensibility. Eleanor was obliged, though unwillingly, to believe that the sentiments which Mrs. Jennings had assigned him for her own satisfaction were now actually excited by her sister, and that however a general resemblance of disposition between the parties might forward the affection of Mr. Willoughby, an equally striking opposition of character was no hindrance to the regard of Colonel Brandon. She saw it with concern. For what could a silent man of five-and-thirty hope when opposed to a very lively one of five-and-twenty? And as she could not even wish him successful, she heartily wished him indifferent. She liked him, in spite of his gravity and reserve. She beheld in him an object of interest. His manners, though serious, were mild, and his reserve appeared rather the result of some oppression of spirits than any of natural gloominess of temper. Sir John had dropped hints of past injuries and disappointments which justified her belief of his being an unfortunate man, and she regarded him with respect and compassion. Perhaps she pitied and esteemed him the more because he was slighted by Willoughby and Marianne, who, prejudiced against him for being neither lively nor young, seemed resolved to undervalue his merits. "'Brandon is just the kind of man,' said Willoughby one day, when they were talking of him together, "'whom everybody speaks well of and nobody cares about, whom we are all delighted to see and nobody remembers to talk to. That is exactly what I think of him.' cried Marianne. Do not boast of it, however, said Eleanor, for it is injustice in both of you. He is highly esteemed by all the family at the park, and I never see him myself without taking pains to converse with him. That he is patronized by you, replied Willoughby, is certainly in his favor, but as for the esteem of the others, it is a reproach in itself.' 
Who would submit to the indignity of being approved by such a woman as Lady Middleton and Mrs. Jennings that could command the indifference of anybody else? But perhaps the abuse of such people as yourself and Marianne will make amends for the regard of Lady Middleton and her mother. If their praise is censure, your censure may be praised, for they are not more undiscerning than you are prejudiced and unjust. In defense of your protégé, you can even be saucy. My protégé, as you call him, is a sensible man, and sense will always have attractions for me. Yes, Marianne, even in a man between thirty and forty. He has seen a great deal of the world, has been abroad, has read, and has a thinking mind. I have found him capable of giving me much information on various subjects, and he has always answered my inquiries with readiness of good breeding and good-natured. That is to say, cried Marianne contemptuously, he has told you that in the East Indies the climate is hot and the mosquitoes are troublesome. He would have told me so, I doubt not, had I made any such inquiries, but they happened to be points on which I had been previously informed. Perhaps, said Willoughby, his observations may have extended to the existence of nabobs, gold mowers, and palanquins. I may venture to say that his observations have stretched much further than your candor. But why should you dislike him? I do not dislike him. I consider him, on the contrary, as a very respectable man, who has everybody's good word and nobody's notice. "'who has more money than he can spend, "'more time than he knows how to employ, "'and two new coats every year.' "'Add to which,' cried Marianne, "'that he has neither genius, taste, nor spirit, "'that his understanding has no brilliancy, "'his feelings no ardour, "'and his voice no expression. "'You decide on his imperfections so much in the mass.' replied Eleanor, and so much on the strength of your own imagination that the commendation I am able to give of him is comparatively cold and insipid. I can only pronounce him to be a sensible man, well-bred, well-informed, of gentle address, and, I believe, possessing an amiable heart. Miss Dashwood, cried Willoughby, you are now using me unkindly. You are endeavouring to disarm me by reason and to convince me against my will. But it will not do. You shall find me as stubborn as you can be artful. I have three unanswerable reasons for disliking Colonel Brandon. He threatened me with rain when I wanted it to be fine. He has found fault with the hanging of my curricle, and I cannot persuade him to buy my brown mare. If it will be any satisfaction to you, however, to be told that I believe his character to be in other respects irreproachable, I am ready to confess it. And in return for an acknowledgment, which must give me some pain, you cannot deny me the privilege of disliking him as much as ever. Thank you for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sense and Sensibility. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Pride and Prejudice, Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, and The Woman in White. You can help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. 
And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.